Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. It's NADOC week and the theme this year is get up, stand up, show up. And someone who does all of these things and more and whose family has for generations is Yawuru woman Inala Cooper. Inala is director of the Murup Barak, uh, the uh, Melbourne Institute for Indigenous Development at Melbourne University. And she's also author of an essay released at the beginning of this much, which, month, which was um, just a couple of days ago, called Moral Aboriginal Identity and the Fight for Rights. It's beautifully written and part of the National Interest uh, series of essays and um, Anala has made it very um, a personal essay about the push for change across generations and Anala, a very good morning to you. Hello. Good morning. Great to be with you on the phone. I'm sorry I'm not there in the studio with you. Well, next time, because <laughs> I'm sure there oh, will be a next time, time because so. <laughs> this is just such a beautiful essay and um, hopefully there'll be many more after this one. Um, but it's called Moral, uh, the, the Changing Wind. Can you tell us about about that word before we go into the contents of the essay? Yeah, absolutely. So Moral is a Yaru word and I didn't grow up um, speaking my speaking Yaru language, I grew up only speaking English. So my, thankfully due to amazing technology, there's an app um, where I can learn Yaru words and teach them to my son and my amazing niece, um, Dahlia Pigram, knows our language and teaches it in some of the primary schools in Broome. So yeah, it's a word that means changing wind or changing season and I thought it was an appropriate title um, given all that I wanted to share in the book as well as um, really what's going on in the world right now. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, gee, it's, it's a big topic, Aboriginal identity and the fight for rights. When you knew you were going to be writing this book, how did you think about approaching it? What, what was sort of most important to you about uh, what you wanted to express on that you know, very large topic? Well, first and foremost, I was careful to only talk about my personal experience. Um, I didn't want any there to be any um, confusion or any assumption that I'm speaking for anyone other than myself. And my starting point was my dad's mum and dad, my grandparents on my paternal side, who are two people that I never met, sadly. They both passed away before I was born. But starting with their story in the 1940s was really important to me because... Um, thinking about identity, we really do have to look back to, um, you know, our, our family history, our community's history. Um, that was important to me to reflect on what is my what is my identity now as um, an Aboriginal woman in 2022. So yeah, family was was really the starting point, and yeah, particularly when it comes to writing something or telling a story, ensuring that it's inherently my experience. And I'd, I'd love, um, I mean, they're, they're big stories, so I know it will just be um, really the surface, but I'd love you to share some of the stories that you, you do in the essay, Nala, about your grandparents um, and perhaps um, start with, with your paternal grandparents. So you know, tell us a little bit about who, who, they, who they were. Yeah, so my, my grandmother was um, 
was a Yaru woman called um, Patricia, Patricia Jaguin. And um, I'm told by all accounts that she was um, uh, a fierce, a staunch um, woman. And my grandpa, um, his name was John Snowy Dodson. And not much is known about Snowy. His history was a bit of a mystery. Some of the family think that he might have been from Tasmania. Others thought that he was a stowaway that um, flew into Darwin in a in a cargo plane. Um, but there's no doubt that they loved each other, and they were living. Uh, Snowy made his way um, from the south up to Christmas Creek in Western Australia, which is where. Um, he met my grandmother and my two oldest aunties. And the, a big part of their story um, is that my grandpa was um, arrested and put in prison in Fremantle. The charge was cohabiting with a native woman. Um, and again, there's some... That, that's another part of the mystery of my grandparents' story, which is, was my grandfather a white man or was he an Aboriginal man that was white-passing? Um, but he, he paid a huge sacrifice for loving my grandmother, which was hard labour. Um, and this is only in the 40s. There are, there are people still alive who can remember those times. And, um, yeah, again, you know, they're not here to tell their own story. It's only through what I've learned from um, older family members um, about just how hard they had it and, and how hard they had to fight for their rights. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, those stories are, are so crucial to hear about in the, the context of, um, you know, issues around reconciliation and, and, and rights sort of broadly speaking today mm. as well. But but in in the course of, of writing this piece, I mean, you know, obviously, I, I assume you, you know been gathering these stories and hearing these stories for some time. But did you find that that new things emerged through the actual process of, of researching and, and writing this book? Yeah, it's really amazing how you start to remember things. Once you delve back into your memory and your history and stories, um, there were definitely things that came up um, that were sort of, yeah, I suppose kept back in my memory um, for some time. Stories about growing up on my my maternal um, grandparents' farm, my mum's parents. They were farmers um, down in southwest Victoria. They had a, a farm in Codrington, which is sort of in between Port Ferry and Portland on Gunditjmara country. And, um, yeah, it really is amazing the things that I remembered. And um, I don't know, those... those beautiful memories that I had locked away about um, just how fun it was growing up on a farm. A farm is an amazing place for, for a kid. You can run and, you know, you learn you learn so much. And I, um, whilst I didn't grow up on Yaru country in the Kimberley, um, I'm grateful to my maternal grandfather who had Irish heritage um, for teaching me about the land. Yeah, and you, I mean, you do write about that in the essay, and other is, and um, and I, I haven't actually seen known the, the um, local word for broom, which is rubibi, I think. So rubibi broom, yeah, rubibi, um, yeah. Pipkill in Port Ferry, um, and yeah. now Melbourne, and these are the places that ground you. And I'd love you to, to sort of share that a little about how how they each ground you those those three places. Yeah, I mean, Port Ferry is such a beautiful place and growing up um, just outside of there on the farm but then in town as well, um, I, the connection I suppose I feel to 
the the elements of that place, the salt water, the sand, the wind. The wind is just um, such a... It, that's the main character in, in Port Ferry, I think. <laughs> Southern Ocean. Um, <laughs> it is. It really is. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think the, the connection that we as human beings as part of nature have with the other elements of nature, it's, it needs to be just tapped into a bit more, I think, um, being more mindful of how it feels when we connect to the place we're in. Um, it can be really grounding. And, yeah, I mean, contrasting Port Ferry with a beautiful place like Broome, um, you know, the, the colours are different. The red of the sand, the blue of the water is a different blue. Um, I feel just as connected there as I do when I'm at home in Port Ferry. Um, the wind in the Kimberley is different. Um, the sand and the salt is a little bit different, but the similarities, again, um, give you that grounding. So, yeah, I, I just I, I feel privileged to call both places home. Yeah, we're speaking with Inali Cooper, Yoru woman, director of the Murrup Barrack Melbourne Institute for Indigenous Development at the University of Melbourne, and speaking today about a new book she has authored, has authored for Monash University's In the National Interest series. It's called Murrup Aboriginal Identity and the Fight for Rights, and and you explored the issue of reconciliation in this book, and I mean this is a is a word that underpins so many policy documents for organisations, governments, local councils, and so. On, but you write that reconciliation is an ongoing process, something that each community and generation must decide upon, and I'm quoting directly from the book here, to be reconciled mm-hmm. with our past, with white Australia's past and present, it is not enough to ask if we are achieving reconciliation, we must ask if we are achieving justice. I wonder if you can speak to that, that sentiment and what reconciliation truly means and, and looks like to you. Yeah, thanks Dylan. I mean, I grew up, um, I grew up in the Catholic Church, and so reconciliation has a certain meaning as it relates to the sacrament of confession. So when I was a kid, you know, going to church every Sunday and learning about what reconciliation was in that context, it it gave me something, it gave me a starting point to when my uncle, um, my uncle Pat Dodson and others started bringing reconciliation with a capital R into the public sphere. And now I think, um, I mean, the the folks at Reconciliation Australia, I think, do an amazing job and reconciliation action plans um, in organisations can have a role. But I think as a nation, we're getting past the point of, um, you know, only talking about reconciliation, we need to shift the dial to put the focus more onto justice. And, I mean, that's that's been happening, the, like you said at the start, the, the theme for NAIDOC this week, this year is um, get up, stand up, show up, and that's what MOB have been doing, um, you know, for decades, centuries. Um, we just need everyone else to come along with us. So I think if people are... Thinking about reconciliation, I would urge them to ask themselves, you know, personally, but in organisations as well, what do you actually mean by reconciliation? What are you trying to reconcile? And, you know, for organisations, how are you sharing the wealth and the power? Um, That's what's really important because, um, yeah, it's not just about 
um, putting on a morning tea, making an acknowledgement of country and flying the flags. Those things are important, but we've got to, we, we can do more than that. Yeah, and you also um, focus, you know, to speak about diversity and inclusion in the SN. I'd love you to sort of speak about that a little bit more because these are also things that under underpin a lot of organisations and policy and things like this. Um, and you want to see us as a, as a community speak about them in a strength-based way rather than as a deficit. And I really just, that really connected with me, but I'd love you to explore it a little bit more now, if you could, Anala. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, look... I just diversity and inclusion have sort of become buzzwords for organisations. Um, you know, I think when you drill down to it, what they often end up meaning are anyone who's not a white man. Okay. <laughs> um, so, look, I, diversity is really important, but what is more important is defining what we mean by diversity. And I, and when we use the word inclusion, um, you know, I think that word still implies a power imbalance. You know, um, inclusion can be like picking teams for sport. You know, are you going to be the right type of person to fit into the team? So, um, you know, are, are you going to be are you going to be the right kind of diversity to fit in? And Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, we don't need organisations to work out how to include us. We need respect and... Um, Starting with respect is fundamental, I think, to productive relationships, um, which lead to um, what we were talking a minute ago um, about, which is reconciliation and, and justice. But reconciliation, you know, it takes two parties, and what I'm really interested in is how white Australia can reconcile with themselves about our past, but also our present. Um, you know, injustices in this country are not just historic, they're happening now. Yeah, absolutely. And and throughout the essay as well, you explore a range of, of landmark events, you know, symbolic events that, of course, have, have practical implications, particularly from, you know, throughout the 90s with, with Paul Keating's Redfern speech and, and mm. acts like Nicky Winmar at Victoria Park, you know, lifting up his shirt and pointing to, to his skin, which is such a, yeah. an iconic image. And, and sometimes when we, you know, speak about Aboriginal rights and justice, there can be a real focus on these single events, which are significant, but of course, not the end of the story at all. Um, you also talk about truth-telling in, in, in the book, and we've got a, a process underway in Victoria through the Uruk Justice Commission mm. and, and talk about a, a Makarata Commission as part of the Uluru Statement from the Heart, if, if that is you know, taken to a, a referendum and so on. But, but from where you sit, how does that process of, of truth-telling look and the idea of embedding the process of re- reconciliation more at the core of, of what that means for the fight for Aboriginal justice? Mm. Uh, I just think the work of the Justice Commission is so important. And, um, um, you know, what a time that we're all uh, alive and here to see this happening now. I just think the work that um, elders and other community members have put in to to get the commission up is commendable. It's um, And, you know, there's no doubt that the lives of and the... Um, the experiences of our kids and grandkids to come are going to be changed because of the work of New York. Um, Yeah, I mean, truth-telling is... We can't heal as a nation, we can't heal as communities or families without the truth um, coming out. And it 
can be really difficult and it will no doubt be emotional and, and hard, but um, we've got to have courage uh, for the truth to come out and that includes our political leaders and that's why I included some, some stories in the book about um, different political events throughout my teenage years because they make an impact. You know, when you're 14, 15 years old, you're so impressionable and I didn't realise how impressionable I was back then until I started writing about it now. I'm in my 40s. And thinking about it, I was like, wow, they those events, the Redfern speech, you know, I remember watching the football live with Mum on the TV when Mickey Winmar lifted his jumper. Mm. And I remember saying to Mum, we're Essendon supporters. <laughs> 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 so go Bombers. We had, we had a win over the Swans <laughs> on the weekend. But um, but I remember looking at Mum and, and seriously saying to her, how can anyone back for Collingwood? I just don't. I, I just couldn't understand how anyone could barrack for that team. Now, I mean, people are born into football teams. I get it, and um, you know, not not any team is perfect. But yeah, those those events um, that you witness on TV, especially in the nineties when you don't have the internet in the palm of your hand, the impact is huge. And when it's an emotional impact, and that um, you know. Formula starts to formulate who you are as a person, what your politics are, and what your identity is becoming. Um, I just felt it really important to share. And if other black fellows who read the book, if it resonates, then um, you know, I hope I hope that I hope that it resonates with others as well. Yeah. Yeah, and no, I mean, it, it makes me think about the the current representation of First Nations um, MPs in our in our national parliament and senators. I mean, yeah, yeah I mean, just thinking about the the impact. Um, I, I expect you know positive on on current generations having a look at the makeup of this particular parliament. I mean, what's your sense around that? Uh, look, that that saying you can't be what you can't see is so important. Um, and, you know, in my work at the University of Melbourne, we, we constantly hear from our students saying they want to see themselves reflected in the leadership of the university. Um, and to see more Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people in Parliament, um, it's undoubtedly making a difference because we're seeing our mob, our elders and senior people in there um, trying to make a difference. And, you know, they're devoting their entire lives now to this role that they've taken on. Um, and whether it's whether their their work is um, broadly trying to decolonise our systems or into more specific things around health and um, justice and other things, it's just you know, if I was if I if I'd seen the current um, you know, lineup of, of of black uh, people in parliament when I was fourteen, um, it, it would have had a profound impact on me. So, um, elevating those people and, and keeping them visible and, and hearing what they have to say is really important, especially for young people. I think. Absolutely, it's been such a pleasure having you as part of today's show, Alana. Congratulations on the book. And are there any events uh, to, to celebrate its release? Thanks, Dylan. Yeah, I'll be at Readings in Ligon Street this Thursday night with the amazing Jonathan Green from um, ABC, RN. So that's a, a public event. I just love Readings and I love going to their events and now I can't <laughs> believe it's my own. Totally. So, um, um, yeah, so I would love to see you at Readings. Absolutely. Thursday night.
Yeah, get down Thanks. there and um, and enjoy your NAIDOC week as well, Inala. Thanks again for joining us today. Thanks a lot. See ya. Inala uh, Cooper there, a Yaru woman, speaking about her brand-new book as part of Monash University's In the National Interest series. It's called Murrell, Aboriginal Identity and the Fight for Rights. And Inala also is the director of Murrup Barrack, the Melbourne Institute for Indigenous Development, over at the University of Melbourne. And I always give a plug for a short book. It's an essay, and you can knock it off really quick, and it's just really quite beautifully and tightly written so congrats to Anala on that uh, and yeah it fits in your, it'll fit in anyone's handbag so yeah almost in your pocket copy. it would pockets. yeah <laughs> Triple R on FM digital online and via the app thanks so much for being here it means a lot it's a very good morning when we have David Mann in the studio. David's Exec Director of Refugee Legal and uh, G'day, hello. G'day, it's so good to be back in person in the studio. Isn't and, it? Um, and so comforting to have the mic and the headphones with masks on. <laughs> <laughs> I know there are no visuals on offer for listeners, but seriously, I walked in and why haven't, people, why haven't we thought about this around the world? Mics and, and headphones with... You know, masks. <laughs> well, well, they're more a bit like, bit more like, um, if you imagine it, people can imagine, uh, you know, like a, a shower cap. Yeah. But for your headphone That's cans, it. yeah. We've just got used to it now, haven't we? This I is think what we'll... we do for our guests at Triple R. Yeah, so yeah. kind. Glass of water and yeah. um, shower caps for your no, mic. I feel safe. Yeah, good. Yeah. I'm glad because we are going to take you into, I don't know, different kind of territory and then have a look at some of the reforms that we might see under the new yeah. federal government. And one of them is discussion now about a review of the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. And I guess I'd love to draw this out a little bit, you know, from why is, why is this significant first? And then we can start to look at the makeup of the tribunal, what it's been like and, and perhaps what it, what it could be. But yeah, tell us why this AAT is important when it comes to refugee and asylum seekers in Australia. Yeah, well, it's the review body that that um, reviews government decisions. So it reviews decisions of the Department of, of Home Affairs in relation to, for example, whether or not someone uh, should be given protection as a refugee. So when the Department of Home Affairs reviews a case, the, there's an automatic right to seek review, uh, a merits review, which is basically, with, with merits review, it's essentially looking at the case afresh. So you get a different decision maker, uh, you get a hearing, and um, it, as long as, well, Sometimes you get a hearing. I'll, we'll come back to that. Um, but traditionally, in the past, um, for many years, it was just automatic. You get a hearing and different decision maker to relook at the case, uh, including being able to provide additional information um, and uh, and you know be able to you know I guess have the opportunity to respond to any concerns. So it's absolutely critical, and it's proven in practice to be critical as a critical safeguard uh, to ensure that we get it right on these questions of life or death. And uh, so that's why it's so fundamental. And just the volume of cases that go through, I mean, I'm sure everyone's aware, but I'll just say it, that the Department of Home Affairs, Department of Immigration, in whatever form it's been over the years, has made, has had a pattern of systemically making decisions that are then overturned in very substantial numbers. Um, it differs depending on the period and the kinds of cases, but the point is that plenty of people get found to be refugees on review. So it's not everyone, but uh, there are very significant numbers that do. So it's a critical safeguard. And obviously a really crucial process for you to engage with through refugee legal. How has it actually functioned in, in recent times when there is a decision that 
you know you, you you want to have contested or somebody wants to contest yeah well look it's how it's functioned in 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 practice has been i mean of course it's been largely online i mean just to to you know like we're in so many um you know ways that we live at the moment through covid it's been online but i think that really the the fundamental to cut to the chase the fundamental concern in recent years it's become more and more acute the concern that um that the decision decision makers that have been appointed have been appointed through a, a highly politicized process and you know the, the point of that is and and not through um a consistently merits-based process so in other words you know that there's and I'm sure people have been hearing this in the media there's been profound concerns and, and they've been expressed by the, the new attorney general Mark Dreyfus um, that uh, that the AAT has been stacked with political appointees that's the that's the allegation that's the concern and um, why that's so important is not a tech, it's not a technical point I think sometimes these things can look like they're a bit esoteric or the, the sort of province of you know sort of politicians and lawyers etc you know getting an appointment process is right, but of course, it's fundamental to making sure that we have properly qualified people making such serious decisions which impact people's lives so fundamentally. Um, so, properly qualified people uh, who are able to make decisions, you know, quality decisions, um, getting it right, um, but also making decisions quickly. Because one of the one of the you know key aspects of the administrative review process, which whatever it is in Australia, is that it's both fair that it's just, but it's also efficient and quick. Mm. And um, and that's not also always an easy task. But so having properly qualified people who understand how the law works, who are able to make, you know, proper decisions, you know, really considered decisions, weighting evidence properly, all of these kinds of things on, on matters that couldn't matter, well, issues that couldn't matter more in people's lives, like being protected from persecution. And, I mean, I think people, with regards to what's been going on in the US and, and seeing what that appointment, you know, politicised appointment process for the Supreme Court looks like and some of the big controversial decisions recently can maybe understand better what the Administrative Appeals Tribunal and some of the questions and concerns raised about it. But what has the makeup of the tribunal been and what is it that uh, Mark Dravis, the new Attorney General, is proposing to do, do you think? Yeah, well, look, the, the concern is that there have been um, a lot of people appointed who just simply don't have not been appointed through what we would consider to be an ordinary merits-based process where there are uh, ascertainable criteria uh, that someone then has to meet in, you know... Written... And they're attractive jobs, are they? Oh, very lucrative jobs. Yeah, right. I mean, very, very well paid. Mm. I mean, they're, they're, yeah, they are. And they're, and they're, they're for long terms too. The terms have been extended. So they're for many years. You know, these are fixed term appointments that then can be, that people can get reappointment. But one of, one of the concerns has been that some people have been appointed without even an interview. Um, and uh, that's when you get into the terrain of going, what is going on here? So what can Mark Dravis do? Well, he's got various options. One of them, I guess, would be uh, to... Uh and I think this is the one that's been floated, the most serious of them, is to literally disband, dissemble uh, the whole tribunal and start again. Can I just make one other, uh, in a really practical sense, going back to the point that you're both making the question, what, are, what other implications are there here? The backlogs 
of decision making in this area as a as a consequence of real really deep flaws in the system, including the appointment process, are in the tens of thousands. Now, in practical terms, there are cases of ours, many cases. Where, so we, of course, take on cases where we believe there is a case. You know, that, that people really have a, 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 an arguable case, and um, and uh, for for getting protection as a refugee, we we have cases that are waiting. You know, two or three years for a hearing. Um, let alone a decision after that, which could take a long time. So the backlogs are in the tens of thousands. They're at a point, the gridlock, the backlog, that's so serious um, that some really, really critical steps need to be taken. So disbanding, I imagine, would also be, um, you know, the big question around then bringing it back together again. Yeah, well, I was sort of interested in in the vulnerability of of groups who might engage the the Administrative Appeals Tribunal process, because we're talking specifically about refugees, people who who might, you know, have their migration status revoked or, or something like that. But there's also people accessing the NDIS. Uh, they might have a dispute relating to welfare. So very vulnerable groups who might be waiting for a long, long time and also need to put up the costs to actually have their case reviewed in the, in the first place. That's it. And, and all of these people, and I'm so glad you brought that up. It, yes, it's refugees. Yes, it's people seeking migration in, the general, uh, in general migration. But there are these, so many, there are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people going through the tribunal and what they're all asking is, has the decision by the by the bureaucrat, the, the, the government decision maker, the initial decision, is it right? Is it ha- have they got it right? And so many times we've seen, so many times we, we all have experiences of, of hearing of decisions that just simply mm. are wrong, they're unfair, they're unjust, and, and, and that's found often to be the case at the AAT. So but the delays too, I mean, you know, the delays for vulnerable people, uncertainty is one of the most harmful things that we see with people that we help. Uncertainty lies at the heart of the predicament for so many people, leaving people in further limbo in their lives for years, waiting for a hearing, waiting for a decision on a case is enormously harmful. Um, it can really re-traumatise people. And I, and I also think that uh, there is the old, um, the old saying, and I think it has some real truth in it, that justice delayed is justice denied. And David Mann's with us from Refugee Legal. And I wonder, I mean, we, we have seen since the new federal government that the Natasa Lingam family's back in Biloela and on a temporary visa. And, uh, I mean, I think there's been a lot of joy and relief around that, but also concern around the visa status. But with regards to just not to move off the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, that was seemingly a a ministerial decision there, the minister. And so how does that intersect what the minister's decision-making is versus what the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, because you can't imagine, you know, could a minister, like, clear the backlog here, Um, um, David? Um, Not to to sound too optimistic, but, you know, what what are these various different uh, ways that people can have their case reviewed and looked at again? Yeah, so so the Administrative Appeals Tribunal is an independent uh, body, administrative body that, uh, that makes... Decisions under law and independent, and yep. independently of, of so it's an administrative, it's a government review body, but with members appointed to, to act independently and to make decisions under law rather than discretionary decisions, if you like. And so it is very different. So with the Billawheeler family, uh, they had been refused at the tribunal and, uh, and then gone to the courts. So you can, after the tribunal, can go to the courts and appeal your case if you've been refused. Although it's a far narrower question in the courts, it's not looking at the case of fresh 
all the evidence. It's actually just looking at whether whether that evidence and, and the laws were applied properly. Mm. So it's a much narrower question. You can't have your case reheard, even if there were really problematic ways in which the evidence was weighed up. So with their case, that the, the final step in a way, once you've gone through the courts, the final step is is an, a, a plea to the minister. It's called a, a, a ministerial request uh, for, for ministerial intervention on, on humanitarian grounds. And that's where you've been refused through the legal process, um, but asked the minister to substitute that decision effectively to, to replace it with uh, a visa, granting of a visa. And that's what's happened here. Hugely symbolic, um, hugely symbolic. Uh, because what it really represents, I think, in many ways, is not only common sense decision to intervene after years of, of you know, sort of, you know, legal wrangling, legal battles, but also extraordinarily bloody, bloody minded and um, so unnecessary and bloody minded the decision to consign the family to Christmas Island to such further inhumanity. Um, but so hugely symbolic about really, I, to me, it's it's what it what it represents is to to symbolic principles, values really, about um, acting humanely as a humane and simplified process. Mm. That's um, and uh, so incredibly important, but a discretionary decision, you know, a one-off, it's, it's, and each decision is looked at on its, you know, sort of on the, uh, as an individual case. And that's an know. important point, isn't it? Because these people had a human face, the, the community of Biloela was, you know, very public about saying we want them to come back, we want them to live in our community again, we want our, our friends back with us. Us. But that is just, just one case, as you say. Since this new government has commenced its term, what sense do you have about broader policy reforms in a sort of systemic sense, I suppose, that we might see so far? Yeah. So I think that the first and the most important point is that uh, it's only, um, you know, once or twice in a generation uh, that there is a, a genuine uh, prospect of change, you know, a, a real hope for real change. And we're in it now. Um, so the question really, as I see change, is not whether it'll happen. Change is inevitable. The question is what shape it'll take. You know? And what we know from history is that those periods don't come up very often. Um, and we can look in Australia, we can look internationally. Certainly not when it's about restoring rights, not when it's about restoring humanity, not when it's about, um, you know, basically reforming a process so, so that it is humane and simplified, that it's fair, you know, and that it treats people properly and properly under law too. So we're in that, I think we're in that, that period squarely at the moment where there is that real prospect. But we also know uh, that it's not sort of that change doesn't of, of, a, of a, a humane kind, change of a better kind doesn't come through supernatural forces, you know, or through the wind or you know, it, it's, it's, it's shaped by, by us, you know, it's shaped by political will, yes, but it's also shaped by us, uh, by public will. And so that's the period we're in at the moment. So TPVs is one of the most important. Mm. So I'll go through a few of the issues that we're prioritising and that the government has said that they were going to be seriously looking at. Uh, and, and some of them they even said during the election when the, uh, the now opposition... Uh, the former government, we're trying to wedge them. But TPVs, you know, temporary protection visas, which we've talked about so often as one of the critical issues in Australia, the basic point is that the government is looking, uh, they committed to looking at reform 
Um, what that reform needs to, to involve is not something complicated but something simple and straightforward and humane again, and that is for the 19,000 people who are in our community who have been found to be refugees who are being re-traumatised by living in limbo where they can the best they can ever get is a three- or five-year visa that they have to reapply for at the end of that period for the rest of their lives is to abolish that, abolish it completely and convert every single person, their status, every single person in temporary limbo to permanency to a permanent visa. That can be done very quickly. Yeah, we've put a proposal to the government, very simple, clear proposal, which is basically, and I'm not going to get into legalese here, but <laughs> simply, it can be done through regulation. It doesn't have to go through both houses of parliament. It can be done through simple regulatory change to basically deem people who are on a temporary visa to be offered a permanent visa, and that then all that they need to do is simply accept that, 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 uh, that offer of a permanent visa, and that would be transformative as a first step, you know, tra absolutely transformative. And we've seen something similar just come in on the 1st of July, I understand, with regards to migration visas. So these things happen in other parts, uh, like parts of the economy, bringing in people for yeah. skills gaps and things like this. Oh, yeah. These, there are so many things that can be done quickly without legislative change that can be done through regulation, through policy, to affect a more humane and simplified um, policy more generally. But that would be transformed. I just want to explain just quickly why, for, for people who've been living in this sort of twilight world you know, of, and re-traumatised by you know, having le left from one kind of uncertainty, fled from one kind of uncertainty in their lives and dangers, to then being consigned to further uncertainty certainty. But there's been a total prohibition on that temporary visa, TPVs, temporary protection of a total prohibition on family reunion. So loved ones stuck often in the kinds of dangers that people fled from cannot be sponsored. Um, but if they get a permanent visa, they can all of a sudden. Um, but also that ability to finally, after years, and we're talking for so many people, it's now a decade or more that they've been in Australia. Um, and, um, you know, Wanting to de yeah, deeply wanting to create a new home and sense of belonging, it would be transformative. Mm. Um, you know, I do want to note though in that context that um, that people who and this goes back to actually the AAT discussion too. I did say that most people that it, traditionally people had got a, a, a new hearing um, if they'd been refused by the department. There was a process called the fast track system introduced by the former coalition, the, the coalition government, uh, which basically took away hearing on merits review and left us with this. This uh, at the AAT, this special process, this inferior form of review where you don't get a hearing, you just you get your review done on the papers, and that has resulted in a fundamentally fair, unfair, fundamentally unfair process for review, and so many people have been refused uh, who were seeking a TPV. So there's over seven thousand people who were refused under this fundamentally unfair process. Many of them from places that they'll never be able to go back to. Yeah, they refuse protection, like from Afghanistan. So what does the government do here? Now, that is a complex question. You know, what do you do when people have been refused under an unfair process and they're now in the courts? It's taken in the courts, you know, sometimes well over two years 
to even get a directions hearing, let alone a proper hearing of your case. So what do you do? So a lot of work still to be done by the sounds of things. What kind of relationship do you have with the, the current and, and relevant ministers? Uh, we have a, we have a, um, a, a, I would call it a very constructive and open dialogue and um, one where, and I, and I would only expect this to continue a genuine interest in engagement on what are the issues, what, what, what's actually happening to people, what, 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 what would reform look like? So yeah, it's um, and uh, we would expect that to continue. And to, we're not always going to agree, of course. Um, and you know, we can have there'll be conversations had in many contexts. Sometimes they'll probably end up being, you know, around a table. Sometimes they might even be in a court. Those mm. conversations. But there's an open, constructive uh, engagement, and um, that's what it should be. Well, watch this space and they'll um, benefit from your extensive experience, David, you and your colleagues, and um, thanks so much for coming in again. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.